Hi, and welcome to Anatomith. Today, we're going to talk about the well-known story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, who learned about the benefits of a legally binding contract the hard way. We'll see that refusing to pay your pest control guy is pretty bad in itself, but when you factor in an entire town's negligence about their children, well, you get some pretty disastrous consequences. We'll also explore the different theories of the real-life events which may have sparked the popular tale. Then, we'll talk about the possibility that children can hear some pitches that adults can't. Because maybe Hamelin wasn't just full of terrible parents who didn't even notice when all of their kids started marching out to the streets in broad daylight. We're going to go through the process of hearing, how and why we stop hearing higher-pitched sounds as we age, and a rather controversial device that uses this fact to its advantage. Anatomith is a podcast about stories, conjecture, and the human body. Humans have long been using stories as a way to make sense of the world around them. This podcast looks at these stories, the myths, legends, lore, and fairy tales, and tries to find an aspect of medicine that fits in with certain aspects of fiction. I'm Audrey, your host. I'm a medical student who's always been interested in such stories, and I love looking for connections, even though they sometimes don't exist. Please remember that any recommendations I might make shouldn't be taken too seriously. I'm not yet a medical professional, And what I say shouldn't be counted as medical advice. Likewise, the proposed link between myth and medicine shouldn't be counted as fact. This is a podcast that's primarily for entertainment purposes, and it's filled with speculation and conjecture. This is episode 7, Play It By Ear. Last month, I explored stories about hair withstanding incredible weights, and I managed to, just barely, dodge the story of Rapunzel, as retold by the Brothers Grimm. This month, however, we're diving headfirst into another Grimm fairy tale, called The Children of Hamelin, or as it's more commonly known, The Pied Piper of Hamelin. The Grimm fairy tales were derived from folk tales, taken either from oral retellings or from manuscripts. And far beyond the story that's written in the brothers' children and household tales, there are quite a few historical references to the Pied Piper coming to take the children of Hamelin, and not just in manuscripts either, but also in architecture. As such, there are many theories about the true historical events that inspire the story of the Pied Piper, from wars to plagues to natural disasters, and even the more modern theory of alien abduction. A lone man stood on the dirt road that led to a sad, impoverished-looking town. He wore a bright, colorful coat which contrasted greatly with his hard, lined face and his determined slow-motion stride. He was the kind of man that you'd expect to wear black leather everything, a hat tugged low over his forehead and obscuring his eyes, 
and the air behind him sizzling under the hot midday sun as the dust settled around him. Maybe he'd even have a stalk of wheat in his mouth. The stranger walked on, into the town and its deserted streets. Everywhere he went, curtains were pulled back by curious inhabitants. The odd stray cat retreated further into the shadows, as its alert, flashing eyes followed the man's movements. The stranger stopped when he reached the city hall, demanding to speak with the mayor. The Pied Piper was here. Word spread quickly throughout the town. A new rat catcher had arrived. The townspeople had been at their wit's end. They were tired of the holes in their clothes and sacks, the scuttling and scuffling in the walls at all hours, and all the half-eaten and spoiled food that the rats left in their wake. Of course, this wasn't the first time that the townsfolk had heard promises from rat catchers of ridding the town of all of its rats and mice. They'd heard it all before, and yet the rats had either remained or had somehow found their way back. This man seemed different, though, and it wasn't just his colorful garb. They said that he was the best, and, well, that was all that mattered. The townspeople made a deal with the piper. He would lead all the rats and mice away in exchange for nothing short of a small fortune. They shook on it and everything. Not exactly the same thing as a signed contract, but, hey, it was still a handshake. And so the piper set to work. He took a fife from his coat pocket, practically brandishing the instrument. The sun glinted off of the polished metal, and a few children gasped. It was always good to add a bit of flair. After all, showmanship was part of the craft. As soon as he lifted the instrument to his lips, vermin poured out onto the streets. The piper kept playing, making his way to a nearby river, with the procession of rats behind him. Without missing a beat, the man stepped into the rushing waters, and all the rodents jumped in after him. Some say that the rats even drowned. Satisfied, the man made his way back to the town. It was time for the goal that he was promised. But the townspeople, now rid of their furry little problem, regretted the obscene amount that they had promised him. All that money, just for a 30-minute performance by a one-instrument band marching through the streets? Nah, any one of them could have done that. The townsfolk refused to pay up. I'm guessing a legally binding document didn't sound so bad to the piper now, as he trudged away with nothing to show for his efforts. Time passed, and slowly the town returned to a rat-free existence. Life was better, trade was growing, everything was going well. When one day, a stranger, dressed as a hunter and with a red hat, appeared. No one paid him much mind at first. Ever since the rats had been vanquished, hunters showed up every now and again to sell their goods. This man, however, had nothing with him save a fife, which he raised to his lips. A passerby saw this from the corner of her eye, and stopped momentarily. The instrument, those movements, they looked familiar somehow. The stranger began striding down the street, 
playing his fife, and suddenly it hit the passerby. It was the piper. Except this time, rather than a horde of rats, it was the children of the town, including the mayor's grown daughter, who followed close behind him. The piper kept on, leading his merry band of children walking through the town gates and out of the town. Unbeknownst to the piper, there was a straggler stealthily following the swarm. It was the very same passerby from earlier. She was a babysitter with a child in her arms. The piper, the children, and the babysitter walked and walked, until finally reaching a mountain into which the piper and his swarm of children disappeared. The babysitter ran back to town and told everyone what had happened. What followed next was chaos. Parents sobbed and ran to the town gates, frantically crying out for their children. Messengers were sent out everywhere to inquire about the children, but unfortunately, no one had seen them. Not all the children were lost, however. Two, one blind and the other mute, found their way back to the town. The blind child was able to talk about how they followed the piper, but couldn't point out the mountain, and the opposite was true for the mute child. And one last child, a little boy, had rushed back to the town for his jacket, but the other children had already disappeared by the time he'd returned. The children were never seen again, and to this day, no one knows what happened to them. Some say that they were led into a cave, finally resurfacing in Transylvania. As for the townsfolk, they never forgot. The street that led to the town gates, and through which the piper led the children, is called the Drumless Street, and even today, no music plays on that street. The story says that the piper walked into the town either at 7 in the morning or at noon, which begs the question, what kind of town doesn't realize that all of their children were not only missing, but had been led out of town in daylight? Did not one single person, except the woman with the child, see what was happening or even hear the piper playing? Also, what's the rationale behind abducting 130 kids anyway? I mean, kidnapping the daughter of the highest authority figure in the land. That's pretty typical. All these kidnapped ladies and princesses and what have you. That's standard retaliation tactics when you don't get what you want. And even then, usually the girl is just held for ransom or forced to marry the kidnapper. They don't usually tend to disappear forever. But taking more than a hundred children? That's just a little bit excessive, don't you think? Like, did the piper think that just taking the mayor's daughter was already way too overdone? And decided to go for gold? Did he want to hold a folktale record for most excessive collateral for not being paid? And how did he even deal with all of those children? Did he feed and raise them all by himself? Did something more sinister happen to them? As a general rule, I try not to get too into the irrationalities of folk stories, 
they are stories after all. But apparently these events may actually have happened, at least to some extent. So I guess I just really want answers. In 1603, work finished on a house that was built for the then councillor of Hamelin, Hermann Arendt. Its architecture is typical of the Weser Renaissance style, from the bay windows to the stone ornaments, gargoyle-like reliefs, and even the inscriptions. One inscription, found on a wooden beam on the side of the building, is responsible for the house's name, Rattenfänger House, or the Rat Catcher's House. The inscription says that, in the year 1284, on the 26th of June, the day of St. John and St. Paul, 130 children, born in Hamlin, were led out of the town by a piper wearing multicolored clothes. They disappeared forever after passing the cavalry near Koppenberg. The beam which bears this inscription faces the Bongelostrasse, the street through which the piper led the children away from the town. The house still survives today. In 1917, it was converted into a restaurant, naturally carrying the Pied Piper theme, and it's still open today. Going back a little further, in 1592, a decade before construction on the Rat Catcher's house even began, Augustine von Möpsberg painted a watercolor of the Pied Piper, copied from the stained glass window of the Marktkirche or Market Church in Hamelin. The glass window dates from the 1300s and is considered to be the first evidence of the Pied Piper and the fate of the unfortunate children of Hamelin. The window was destroyed in 1660, but it lives on in Augustine von Möpsberg's watercolor. Throughout the centuries, many written documents have referenced the events that occurred in Hamelin, which very likely was also passed on through oral traditions, finally reaching the Brothers Grimm. The rats play a prominent role in the story. The piper was, after all, a rat catcher, and the whole reason he kidnapped an entire town's kids is because he wasn't paid for his work. The thing about rats in medieval towns is that, at least to me, they immediately conjure up images of plague doctor masks, muck-covered streets, the odd person with a cart yelling, bring out your dead, and just general plaguiness. One would be tempted to think about the infamous Black Death, but it didn't actually peak in Europe until 1348 to 1350 and there doesn't seem to be any historical record of a plague outbreak in Hamelin before then. Not to mention that that particular kind of plague, the bubonic plague, it wouldn't just affect children, but basically everyone. Also, the rats don't actually appear in earlier manuscripts or even in the glass window at all. The first surviving references, which include the rats, arose in the mid to late 16th century, about 300 years after the tragedy is said to have occurred. Other theories about the truth behind the lost children of Hamelin are based around recruitment, 
whether for war, campaigns, or crusades. Medieval sources say that in the summer of 1212, children and youths marched across Europe towards the Holy Land. The campaign ends in disaster and failure. Some say that the group started off in France, others that it originated in Germany. And many other facts about this crusade are equally as confusing and difficult to prove, leading historians to doubt whether this children's crusade existed at all. And even if this children's crusade was real, and the 130 children that the Pied Piper supposedly carried off were part of it, the dates just don't match up. Alternately, some posit that the so-called Children of Hamlin were in fact those townspeople who had been recruited by a brightly dressed sergeant, who may have been the colorful piper of the story. All of these children would later perish in one battle or another. And actually, the theory that they fell in the Battle of Sedemunda in 1260 was quite popular until the late 50s. Again, the dates are just the slightest bit confusing, as I've never heard of anyone dying in battle over two decades before they supposedly ventured out to war. One set of theories is of migration. Some say that the children went on to found new villages in modern-day Czech Republic, or that they traveled to Transylvania, just like the Grimm brothers say, or just settled down somewhere else in Germany. My favorite theory is the one where the children suffered from what was then called dancing mania. Between the 7th and 17th centuries, there were recorded outbreaks of the dancing plague across Europe where groups of people would just break out in compulsive dancing. They were basically spontaneous, probably uncoordinated medieval flash mobs, and we're still not sure what caused them. One particular instance of dancing mania occurred in 1237, where a group of children traveled about 20 kilometers from Erfurt to Anstad, dancing and jumping the whole way. This similarity to the story of the Pied Piper likely gave rise to this theory of dancing mania. Another incident of dancing mania in 1278 involved 200 people dancing across a bridge over the river Musa. The bridge breaks and many drown. Interestingly, there is also an unsupported claim that the 130 children died due to the collapse of a bridge. Other theories involve landslides and other similar natural disasters taking place around the various mountains and swamps near Hamelin, and some even blame UFOs and aliens for the children's disappearance. We don't know which of these theories is right, and we probably never will. And, you know, maybe none of those are right. And in fact, the whole Pied Piper thing was all just a scam run by an amazing cat, his educated rodents, and a stupid-looking kid. Who knows? So, I know I just spent a lot of time talking about the different ideas about the historical events, if there are any, behind the Pied Piper and the Lost Children of Hamlin. 
but this is a medicine podcast after all. No matter how many times I make a questionable right turn and make a detour through history. What I want to explore today is how someone could potentially go about emitting a sound that only the youth can hear. Here's a message from today's sponsors. To combat the deadly miasma of the plague, doctors recommend smelling your own farts. It's a simple, cost-effective, and self-renewing form of treatment. But you also want to make sure that you're storing your hard-made flatulence in quality containers. Delftware & Co. has the right product for you. Our new line of ceramic jars are not only gorgeous and intricately decorated, but specifically designed to keep your wind fresh and foul-smelling to chase that miasma away. You can even choose from a wide array of shapes, sizes, and styles, and then select apothecaries. You can even design your own, just to further personalize your experience. Delftware & Co. Defeat the plague in style. wondered how the townspeople didn't notice that all the children were following some guy out through the town gates. Like, it takes an entire town's worth of inattentive and observant for that to even happen. Like I mentioned before, was part of the reason maybe because enough of the adults had heard the pipers playing? Is it even possible, in real life, for kids to hear a sound that adults can't? And the answer, surprisingly enough, is yes. Children can hear pitches of sound that adults can't. In 2005, a box was mounted over a grocery store entrance in Wales. It emitted a high-frequency sound that was unheard and unnoticed by most, but those who did hear it, teenagers and young adults, found the pulsing emissions very annoying and tried to get out of hearing range as quickly as possible. The device is called the Mosquito by its inventor, Howard Stapleton. The sound it emits is at a frequency high enough that it can only be heard by younger people, and generally doesn't affect those over the age of 25. So there you go, a sound that only children, but not adults, can hear. And a real-life application, too. And sure, the kids were running away from the sound rather than towards it, but hey, no theory is perfect. And I guess the real question is, how come only the young can hear it? I already talked a bit about hearing in the fourth episode, but I didn't really get into too much detail on the ear. This time, I'm gonna get a bit more specific about how we can actually hear sounds. How the ear translates the sound waves in the air into comprehensible messages that the brain can then interpret. Not only is it pretty cool, but it'll also help later on when we try to figure out why adults can't hear higher pitches. And as usual, first, a general overview of the structures of the ear. So I'm not just bombarding you with new, weird names for the next 5-10 to 10 minutes. Scientists like to divide the ear into three regions. The outer ear, middle ear, and inner ear. 
I don't know exactly why, but I guess it's just easier to have a clear division for everything. The outer ear consists of the auricle, that's the shell of the ear, and the part that sticks out. It's where you get piercings, and maybe also the part that your parents or siblings would pinch when you're in trouble. Or maybe they just want to annoy you. After the auricle, there's the auditory canal, which then leads to the eardrum. The eardrum is a membrane that separates the outer ear from the middle ear. In the middle ear, we have the ossicles. These are the three smallest bones in the human body. They're so small that they actually look like the little props that come with Barbie dolls. The individual ossicles also have their own names, because why not? Malleus, Incus, and Stapes. Like many things in the human body, they're named after the shapes that they resemble. Malleus is the Latin word for hammer, and the bone is shaped like a hammer. The Incus looks like an anvil, and the Stapes looks like a stirrup. After the middle ear, we move on to the inner ear, which is where the magic, ahem, the science, of converting the sound wave into nerve signals actually happens. The inner ear is actually responsible for both hearing and balance, but today we only care about hearing. And the important structure for hearing is the cochlea, which is spiral-shaped and filled with fluid. And now, buckle up because we're about to get pretty detailed. So let's start with the sound waves, which are really just vibrations in the air. These sound waves reach the outer ear and are funneled through the ear canal until they finally hit the eardrum. The eardrum is also called a tympanic membrane. And when sound waves hit this, it causes the eardrum to vibrate. These vibrations are passed on to the ossicles, the bones of the middle ear, which are attached to the tympanic membrane. First, the malleus, which is in turn connected to the incus, which is connected to the stapes. Because the three bones are connected, the vibrations travel along them and into the inner ear. The stapes transmits these vibrations into the cochlea through an opening called the oval window. Like I said before, the inner ear, and in particular the cochlea, is where the waves actually get turned into nerve signals. But if it's in the inner ear where we have the production of nerve signals that actually go to the brain, why do we have to bother with the whole vibrating of the three bones? Why not just directly transmit the sound waves to the inner ear? Almost all things in the human body are there for a reason. Sure, there's the odd muscle that's only found in less than one-fourth of the population for whatever reason. But as a general rule of thumb, if something's in your normal anatomy, it serves a purpose and is likely important to normal function. The ossicles are there to amplify the vibrations. The vibrations need to be amplified because the cochlea, the structure in the inner ear where the conversion happens, is filled with fluid. And it's much harder to transmit vibrations through fluid than air. Now this is where it gets good and where the whole sound and hearing thing becomes much more relevant to the episode. Now we're in the cochlea, and there's a structure in the cochlea called the basilar membrane. And as waves pass through the fluid and the cochlea, they cause vibrations in this basilar membrane. So you've got this membrane, 
And on this membrane, you have hair cells. These are the cells which, when activated, send signals that the brain will interpret as sound. On the hair cells, you have bundles of stereocilia. So imagine a hairbrush. The brush is the hair cell, and the bristles on the brush are the cilia. Here's a little something about me. One thing that I've always liked to do is to put my hand on top of the bristles of a hairbrush, and then I move the brush back and forth, kind of like a makeshift massager. I find the movement and the pressure from the bristles very soothing. I bring this up because there's another important structure in this whole process, another membrane. It lies on top of the cilia of the hair cells, and think of it as the hand on top of the bristles. The hair cells are activated when the cilia, or the bristles, scrape against that membrane, or the hand. When hair cells are activated, they send signals, which would then go to the brain, be translated into words and syllables and music and whatever else you hear. And so just to summarize it a little bit, sound passes as vibrations through the eardrum and then the bones of the middle ear. And then when we finally get to the cochlea, they pass as waves through the cochlear fluid. When waves pass through the fluid, the basilar membrane vibrates. And when the membrane vibrates, the hair cells, and therefore their stereocilia, vibrate and move back and forth. And when these bundles scrape against another membrane which lies on top of them, the hair cell releases signals to the brain. Now whenever we hear sound, we hear a range of pitches. We're not just walking around listening to monotone all the time. A higher pitch sound corresponds to a higher frequency sound wave, and a lower pitch means a lower frequency wave. The genius of hearing is that different frequencies of sound cause vibrations in different parts of the basilar membrane. When we hear a sound of a specific pitch, only that part of the membrane which corresponds exactly to that pitch will become activated and send signals. This is how the brain actually interprets pitch. Also, the hair cells on the basilar membrane are arranged in such a way that the cells that detect higher frequencies, and therefore higher pitch sounds, are found on one end, the base. And those that detect low frequencies are positioned at the other end, which is the apex. And finally, we've arrived at the actual topic-relevant part of this episode, so I dragged you through that entire process of hearing just to get to the hair cells and tell you that damage to the hair cells is the reason why our ability to hear higher frequencies declines as we get older. So the hair cells at the base, which are those that detect the highest frequencies, these tend to degrade first. This is normal and unavoidable. There's no getting away from the daily wear and tear that these hair cells suffer. It's all a part of aging. There's still a bit of uncertainty when it comes to why these basal cells are the first to degrade. While studies have shown that the cells in this area are more sensitive to chemical agents like certain antibiotics or chemotherapeutic drugs, there's not a lot of consensus on the anatomical reasons for this degradation in the general population. It may be because all the sound waves have to travel through the entire length of the basilar membrane before they reach the point that matches their exact frequency. 
which means that they all pass through the basal cells on their way. This could be the reason why there's a lot more wear on the cells in this region. As a general takeaway, just remember that the reason why adults can't hear higher pitch sounds, like those emitted by the controversial mosquito device by Howard Stapleton, is that the hair cells responsible for detecting higher frequencies deteriorate much earlier in life than those that detect lower frequencies. I also, just out of curiosity, looked into the hearing range of rats, and they can actually hear the higher frequencies that children can, but adults can't. Rats can hear ultrasound, which is any frequency above 20 kilohertz. 20 kilohertz is the borderline of the human hearing range, and ultrasound is just a sound that is too high-pitched for humans to hear. Rats have a hearing range from 200 hertz all the way up to 80 or 90 kilohertz, which is pretty cool. Folktales sometimes serve as cautionary tales, and maybe the Pied Piper is just another one of those bogeymen. Maybe something did happen to the children of Hamlin, but everything else, just like the rats, were a later addition that never really got shaken off. And as it stands, there's no shortage of theories and no indication that we'll ever find out what truly happened. As for myself, much of the reason why I was intrigued by the Pied Piper was my disbelief at how an entire town didn't realize that their kids were missing. If the Piper was meant to be a cautionary tale to children, I can't say that I was ever really impressed by him. There were far more terrifying bogeymen in my local folklore, and the guy with the instrument and goofy multicolored pants never stood a chance. And lastly, here's one thing that the tale doesn't tell you. Rats are excellent swimmers. So leading the rats into the water? Not very effective pest control, but a great strategy if you're a rat catcher who still wants work tomorrow. Next month, we're looking at pain, or more specifically, lack thereof. We're going to delve into something called congenital insensitivity to pain, which is unfortunately a very real and very dangerous condition. If you like the show, please subscribe to it on your preferred podcast app, and please rate the show and leave a review. It helps to get the word out about the show, and I really appreciate getting feedback. Also, tell your friends about it. You can also reach the show on social media, whether it's to suggest a topic, discuss which Piper theory you like best, or just say hi. Also, let me know if you have your own theories of what may have actually happened. You can find the show on Twitter, at anatomythpod, and on Instagram and Facebook, at anatomith. You can also send an email to audrey at anatomith.com. Links to the website and social media are in the show notes. I'm Audrey, your host, and this was Anatomith. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.